Welcome to the SCORE Life and Health Innovation Podcast, where we dive right into how innovation is driving change around the world in our life and health ecosystem. From founders to investors and corporates, our world is changing rapidly, and we want to come together with you to explore those changes to understand and live transformation with SCORE. As one of the world's largest reinsurers, SCORE provides insurance companies with diverse and innovative solutions focused on the art and science of risk. Combining technical expertise and experience, SCORE leverages global know-how in over 80 countries focused on the life and health insurance industry. My name is Nia Escobar-Kolo and I am your host for today. I'm part of the Life and Health Ventures team and I'm excited to share with you experiences, ideas and thoughts from individuals who are revolutionizing the life and health reinsurance landscape with a wider perspective of our ecosystem. From video game developer to pediatrics orthopedic surgeon to founder, today we're talking to Justin Barad, founder and CEO of Oso VR. This American startup is transforming surgical training and assessment with their virtual reality platform. Despite we're living on a rapidly evolving healthcare ecosystem, traditional training and education modalities have struggled to keep up with new technologies to deliver higher value of treatment, prevention, and intervention. Let's explore how Oso VR is improving patient safety and democratizing access to modern surgical techniques. Um, hi, Justin. Thank you so much for your time today. Can you tell us about you and how you founded Oso VR? Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, it's an, really an interesting story. So. I started out my life really interested in video games and video game development. So started teaching myself programming and decided that I wanted a career in making video games as a programmer. And so I was studying computer science. I landed uh, an internship at Activision, actually, which is a major video game publisher. I got a game credit with them. And then my, my life took a bit of a left turn. I had a family member who was, who was really ill uh, my senior year of high school. And for me, it was a big wake-up call. And I began to think to myself, if there was a way to use software and technology, which I love so much, not necessarily to entertain people through making video games, but to help them, you know, especially people with medical issues. So I pivoted from computer science to biomedical engineering, which I studied at UC Berkeley, with the goal to invent healthcare technology to help people with medical problems. And what I found was pretty surprising is that after 14 years of education, 31% of surgical trainees still can't operate, which meaning they require additional supervision. You know, we all know that it's like, you know, you want to get surgery from a good surgeon or a good surgical team, but how much of a difference does that actually make? So in 2013, there was a study in the New England Journal of Medicine that actually answered this question. What they looked at was, you know, let's look at good surgeons and let's look at not so good surgeons and let's see how their patients do. And what they found was really surprising and uh, maybe intuitive that the lower skilled surgeons had worse patient outcomes in every single metric. So these are things like emergency room visits, hospital readmissions, complication rate, length of stay in the hospital. And probably maybe one of the more frightening metrics is that the lower skilled surgeons had a five times higher mortality rate, meaning you were five times more likely to die from surgery with someone that was lower skilled. We know that there's this huge difference between less proficient surgeons and, and proficient surgeons, but we don't know who those people are, so we can't intervene and do something about it. So I was, I was seeing all of this happen firsthand, and I, I couldn't believe this is how it worked when I got introduced to VR, and very early because of my background in video games. 
And I put on this headset, I had these controllers in my hand, and I was like in this villa in Tuscany, I was picking up books and picking up chairs, and I took the headset off, and I just immediately, I just was like, said to myself, I can do surgery with this. And I had this background in, in programming and video game development, so I was able to put together a prototype. Um, and I actually, I met my co-founder on the internet on an online forum. Uh, he was like looking for work in serious VR. I paid him with my bar mitzvah savings and we were able to put together a demo and that demo won an award, uh, which got us some investment. And so we started the company in October, 2016, which is Oso VR. And that's how we got started. And so Oso VR is a hands-on surgical training and assessment platform. It's highly portable and can be used anytime and anywhere. You can just carry it over your shoulder and you can practice theoretically, any procedure. Um, you have a headset um, that puts you into the virtual world and then you have controllers that track your hands and also provide a haptic feedback in the form of what's called cutaneous haptics. If you're like drilling through bone or cutting through skin, you can, you can actually feel it and it feels uh, pretty good. We had nothing, no way to practice with these techniques uh, without operating on a patient, a cadaver, or some sort of physical model, which is not very scalable and not reusable. So just to understand the context, how is medical surgical training done today? And how are you changing this with the, your technology? The modern model of training surgeons was invented in the early 1900s, really at Johns Hopkins by William Halstead. And it's a basic apprenticeship model. So you spend about five to seven years following more senior trainees and practicing surgeons kind of around. Uh, helping out with various tasks in the hospital and then observing and participating in surgery. But over time, that's really, it's, it's shifted much more towards mainly just observing. So you're just sort of watching surgery for five years and then you're just sort of shot off into the world. Um, and that's really how it works now. And you're really limited to um, basically whatever procedures that the surgeon that you're apprenticing under decides to do and also what patients come through the door. So a lot of statistics and random chance determine what your skill set looks like, like where you train, what kind of patients you saw, and what procedures you're attending is doing. And in the U.S., you go to college, you do a pre-med curriculum, then you do four years of medical school. And medical school in terms of surgical practice is, is, is somewhat useful, but not super useful. So it's, it, you've just spent eight years really not focusing on technical skills necessarily. So um, these are areas that I think can become more efficient. And then then you do your actual training. So that's your internship and residency. And for most surgical specialties, that's around five years. And then at the end of that, you can go off into the world and just practice. But most people, because they feel so undertrained, do additional years of training now. So something called a fellowship. So this is where you further subspecialize. So I identified three things uh, that were a market dynamic that have only been getting worse over time. So the first thing is there's just too much to learn. So, you know, we're in this uh, phase of society where science and technology are progressing at an accelerating rate, right, which is amazing, kind of the whole Moore's Law phenomenon. But what this is doing is it's expanding the library of procedures and surgeries that providers need to know how to do. So we're being spread thinner and thinner. The second uh, cause of this phenomenon is that newer procedures are in general more complicated. So doing a robotic surgery is more complicated than doing just the normal traditional surgery. And so the learning curve, instead of maybe having to do 10 to 20 surgeries in order to be, quote, proficient, you have to do 50 to 100. So an order of magnitude more to become proficient in these procedures. And then the final component of the issue that I saw is that we don't actually assess our providers for their technical skills. So if you think about it, like, you know, whether you're applying to become a surgeon, 
whether you're training in residency to be a practicing surgeon or when you're in practice, at no point really does anyone sit down with you and run you through tests to see that you can do things with your hands, right? Like that you can make incisions and dissect appropriately and all this, all these the various things we have to do. So Justin, you've mentioned hip replacement all the way to neurosurgery. So what are the most challenging procedures a physician can practice using OsoVR? We had this early focus in orthopedics, but now we're starting to branch out in other areas, really focusing on specialties that are technically quite complex, like you mentioned. So in addition to orthopedics, other areas include like interventional procedures. So this would be uh, endovascular surgery or structural heart. So these are like transvascular aortic valve replacements and also basically any surgery that involves a robot. Uh, spine surgery, which is sometimes thought about as separate from orthopedics. These, these are areas that we're branching into. Um, also thoracic surgery we're, we're looking into, but there's really no limit to what you can do in OsoVR. And that's what's amazing about it is that you'll always have this you know, off-the-shelf hardware because we use Oculus Quest, which is uh, really the most amazing piece of technology I've used since the iPhone. And if no one on here has used it yet, I highly recommend you order it off the Oculus store and just try it out and it will change your life. But you know, using this off-the-shelf technology, we can just focus on the software and literally simulate anything. So at this point, the only limit is your imagination. And this is really a huge shift from how simulation in healthcare used to be, because this new paradigm is completely different from how simulation in healthcare used to be. So the idea of simulation is not new in healthcare, right? It's like the idea of being able to practice procedures or scenarios not on patients is seen as really helpful, but the way we've been doing it has been in these uh, very custom kind of either patient mannequins or these giant person-sized simulators that can only simulate a single kind of surgery and cost around $200,000. So how do you consider patient safety when you are training people, when you're training surgeons? And how can you empower surgeons to offer patients the best medical care available? Well, I think being more proficient, we know, leads to better patient outcomes. So, you know, that that is patient safety, right, is uh, making sure that patients have a good result from their procedure. So, you know, in prior years, medical errors, the, I think, believe the third leading cause of death in the U.S. Uh, from a study at Johns Hopkins. And we know that less proficient surgeons and surgical teams have worse outcomes than higher proficient ones. So um, if we can use VR to make these surgical teams more proficient, then they're going to have better patient outcomes, and thus patients are going to be safer receiving procedures. And our mission as a company is improving patient outcomes with better education and assessment increasing the adoption of higher value medical technologies, things like robotics, which further improve patient safety and help level the playing field, and then democratizing access to surgical education. So if you're a patient and you're getting care at the number one hospital in New York, or you're in rural Appalachia, or you're in Ethiopia, you shouldn't be a victim of the the access that your surgical team has to training. You should have or the, the volume of, of cases that they're doing. You should have the same exact results. And, and with technology like robotics and training like OsoVR, you can achieve that. We, we provide that potential. Uh, February of this year, uh, we published a peer-reviewed study that was performed independently at UCLA that showed that individuals that trained in OsoVR, when compared with traditionally trained individuals, performed surgery 230% better. Um, and when I say perform surgery, they were measured using a surgical scoring system called OSATS, which is the Objective Structured Assessment of Technical Skill. And what that 
uh, system is. It's a surgical scoring system that uh, rates people from one to five in various categories like time and motion, flow, knowledge of the procedure, knowledge of the instruments. And in every single category, the VR group outperformed the traditional group. And the overall performance when you summed up the scores across the category was 230% higher in the OSO VR trained group. Um, and we have another study coming up that will be published soon that shows a 300% improvement when training in OSO VR. So when you say how we're addressing patient safety, here we have this technology that leads to a significant gain in surgical performance. And we now know that improved surgical performance equals improved patient safety. So that's how we're addressing it. Definitely. So, I mean, we've seen many applications of augmented reality, virtual reality, and, and mixed methods as well, you know, throughout different industries, including insurance industry, of course. Uh, but it seems like adoption rate has been rather slow over time. What's your experience since you founded OSO VR, especially with such amazing numbers? Any new technology is, you know, even if it's super effective and, and works really, really well, um, you know, people like doing what they're currently doing, especially in medicine, which is the most conservative field when it comes to adopting new technologies. And I would say that not all technologies are created equal. So that also goes for within the same sort of platform. So different AR and VR as a category is not just as like one thing. There are many different applications of AR and VR, some with varying utility um, and also functional business models. So I would caution against uh, kind of like looking at one AR use case and then being like, well, all of this technology is, is not gonna be good. Uh, I have never seen a technology adopted this fast within my field in terms of what we're doing at OSO. And we've been seeing a steady year over year doubling or tripling of our usage and headset deployment. So uh, we've been really growing at a, an accelerating pace and it's been hard to keep up with, uh, to be honest, is our biggest problem. So we're seeing really wide adoption. We're used by 11 medical device companies. We're used in 20 countries, trained over 10,000 surgeons, and uh, we're used by over 15 uh, residency programs as part of their curriculum. So in the context of COVID-19, we were talking before and how we're experiencing acceleration in the adoption of products and services which enable remote activities like telemedicine and of course like virtual reality. So how is this impacting you and how do you think this will set a path for the future? It's, it's been a complicated time for everybody for sure. And I really wish none of this was happening, but I think for VR training and assessment, this has been a, a really good thing. I think there's been a general sense that we're too reliant on sort of informal in-person training that is not tracked or data-driven and has been leading to diminishing results as we've seen from some of the data that we discussed earlier. And uh, everybody felt this way and they knew that they needed to sort of shift or start to incorporate uh, things like OSO VR to get away from that paradigm. But, you know, sometimes people need something to spur them to action. And this definitely has done that. I think the feeling is that one right now is the only way to train is with something like OSO since people can't physically get together. But when we hopefully are soon through this, hopefully soon, you know, on the other end of this, like when are people going to feel comfortable getting on a plane to go to a crowded training course or go to these conferences with that have thousands of people all together, you know, people may think differently about these things in this sort of new normal, so to speak. And, you know, will reps even be allowed in the operating room anymore? We don't really know. And so a lot of people really want to prepare for what the new normal is going to look like to have a system that's more sustainable, should God forbid anything like this happen again, that we have a way to continue to maintain the supply and quality of our healthcare providers with their technical skills. Uh, because right now you have residents, 
sitting at home, not doing anything, potentially facing threat of being held back a year, which would be horrifying because uh, they're not operating. You have medical device companies with these amazing new technologies that are better for patients, but they're unable to train their customers to use them. And these new technologies, which are, when you speak of patient safety, going to level the playing field, are, are not getting out there and at risk of potentially dying on the vine without something like Osovir in place. And so I'm I think everyone's really woken up to that new reality and some people are better positioned to jump on it than others, depending on how reliant you were on elective surgery or how your hospital is doing. But we've seen 10x jump in demand uh, for our product and platform since this all started. It's so interesting because, I mean, there are so many other implications uh, when you just talk about training that normal people who are not physicians uh, do not consider, right? And to understand the impact of the traditional training methods versus new training methods and how far along this can take the, the knowledge and also the care that eventually we all receive when we need to go to the hospital for procedures. So could you share some of the most meaningful let's say, results of that physicians have or, or surgeons have shared with you after they use OsoVR? Yeah, well, I think, you know, everyone who uses it realizes that this is going to completely change everything. I mean, that this is, and this, this feeling of excitement and also gratefulness that this technology is now exists because, you know, the worst feeling is sort of going into the operating room really with the only preparation being you've read like a 90 page textbook or instruction manual it doesn't feel good so there there is uh, a lot of excitement and enthusiasm i think some of the most exciting things have been you know some of our residency partnership sites have told us now that they've been using oso for 2 years and it's an integral part of their training you know every single resident is using it as a structured part of the curriculum and they've noticed a huge difference you know when these residents come into the operating room they're much more capable and independent and safe and they're accelerating much faster because they gain the trust of their colleagues faster and so you know to see real world results like that is it's thrilling you know as a physician to know that i'm, I'm having this uh we're having this positive impact uh, you know one of our our partners said that you know when you see the results of the research of the data behind it that you feel a moral obligation to bring it to as many surgeons and hospitals as possible. And, uh, you know, that really struck me. And it's it's true. It's, it's rare in healthcare to see a technology that has an effect like this. You know, usually it's, it's a small percentage boost or increase, but to see something like a doubling or tripling of performance and improvement in patient outcomes is, is pretty unusual. And so it's like, when you see something that can help people this much, you feel really motivated to want to get it to as many people as possible. So uh, that's just some of the feedback that we've been getting. And, you know, for me, I had to make a very difficult personal decision in the early days of OsoVR where, you know, I was on track to be a full-time academic pediatric orthopedic surgeon. And then I was, you know, had this opportunity to go full-time with the company and not, I still do operate on weekends, but it would definitely be a very different and a very risky road. And to me, if I could, only move the needle a little bit. If I could start the conversation, even if it didn't work, I felt it would be worth it because that's how strongly I felt about this problem that we're trying to solve. And, you know, the, the personal experiences I had was really impactful and I didn't want any one patient or provider to ever have to deal with that in the future. And so I, I knew that it, it would be worth pursuing. And so the fact that we're this far along now and we're getting feedback like this, I mean, I can't tell you how uh, meaningful it is to me and, and our entire team because uh, everybody on the OSO VR team, which now they're around 32, I think, feel the exact same way. 
Justin, I mean, working with a meaningful purpose is something that I guess it's really satisfying uh, and having and understanding also the impact that your work and your vision has in a wider scope and in a wider ecosystem. And for us, the concept of ecosystem is actually really important because we understand that, like you were saying with your example of having an orchestra in an operating room, it's not just you, it's just as the same as not just an insurance company or a service provider, uh, but we're all working together ultimately to provide the best services and the best experiences we have. So um, how do you see this collaboration with the wider scope of the healthcare ecosystem and how maybe how can we support the development of technologies like that in the wider healthcare? I think, you know, if when it comes to the whole ecosystem, everyone has a role to play. This touches every single part, whether you're a patient, your provider, your payer, other insurance provider, you know, whether you're a healthcare institution or a medical device company, everyone has a role to play here. And advocating or pushing for technology like this will, will really help move the needle faster. And so, you know, for example, you know, we've been talking with the malpractice insurance industry and, you know, we have data now that shows that, you know, when people train with this technology that they are more technically competent and less pose less liability. And so, you know, it's it's better for everyone for there to be better patient outcomes and less lawsuits and, and less risk. And so if this technology, you know, can really mitigate risk in that way, there's no reason why we all shouldn't be really pushing for it or even mandating it in certain instances to help mitigate the risk that we're all facing in, in the various uh, sort of stakeholder verticals within healthcare. And, you know, I think whether you're a patient demanding that your doctor be trained and certified uh, in OSOVR, whether you're a payer or your healthcare institution uh, saying that, you know, you're only going to use devices that have OSOVR training associated with it because you know that all your patients are going to do better and that your surgery is going to be faster and that you're going to make more money as an institution and provide more value overall to the healthcare ecosystem. So I think advocating and pushing for technology like this that is proven and is effective, I think is something that uh, we can all do. Justin, thank you so much for your insight. I really enjoyed the conversation. Is there anything else you would like to add that maybe I haven't asked you? No, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the last question I think was my favorite question is that, you know, anyone can be involved and be helpful here from really any sort of stakeholder group. And I think that activism and kind of looking into the, some of the data behind this and, and maybe, you know, seeing how you can get involved to move the needle on, on not just our technology, but various technologies in, in healthcare. And now is a really exciting time to do that because I think there's a lot more willingness and necessity with everything going on for transformative change to take place. And so if you are interested and disruptive technologies within healthcare, you know, feel free to reach out to me. And it doesn't just need to be OSOVR. I think there's so much going on right now with with telemedicine and healthcare IT and uh, patient engagement. It's it's a really this has been a, a terrible time, but I think it's been really exciting to see just all of the innovation and how much people have been embracing these new technologies that we all know have been extremely helpful and are very valuable, but people have been kind of slow to adopt, as you mentioned, and, and now people are starting to. So uh, we should all really double down and, and push people to keep the momentum going. I guess this is um, talk, going back to the beginning of our conversation of how we can turn you know, difficult situations, like having someone who's sick in your family, uh, into an opportunity to learn and to see what change and what impact you can have in the world with with your mission and your knowledge, right? As they say, you, you, you never want to waste a crisis. That's true. That's true. Justin, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciated our conversation and we'll be in touch. Great. Lovely speaking with you. Thanks so much. <laughs>